This is an ABC podcast. When Caroline O'Connor was a little girl of nine, she and her mum drove from Adelaide to Sydney in a blue-green caravan with a white stripe. They were crossing the country to give Caroline a shot at being a dancer. She was off to Ransley's Dance Academy, run by three sisters, Joy, Dawn and Shirley. That gamble paid off because Caroline O'Connor went on to join the Royal Ballet School in London and then quickly found her true home in musical theatre. And that's where the singing voice that Caroline had been hiding behind closed doors was let loose. Caroline O'Connor has won accolades for her performances on the West End, on Broadway, and as tango dancing ninny legs in the air in Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge. Hi, Caroline. Hi. There's sequins and sparkle in your life now. Were you born into very glamorous surrounds? Not at all. It's like the distance couldn't be further apart. You know, my parents, my mum and dad were born in Ireland. My father is one, was one of 11 children, the eldest of 11 children. My mum was one of three. She had a bit of a tragic childhood, my mother. Her father was an alcoholic and um, she went away to work in people's houses, cleaning their houses from about the age of 14. Um, but fortunately, over a period of time, she met my father. My father probably could have been a professional soccer player. But he met my mum quite young and a talent scout wanted him to move away. And he said, I don't want to move away because I might lose her. He gave up soccer for your mum. He gave that up for her. For, and, you know, they had a, mag- a marvellous marriage, absolutely wonderful marriage. And so, yes, it, it uh, was very humble beginnings for them both. So they were, were married in Ireland. In Ireland, in Athlone. Had three children, my sister Terry, who's 10 years older than myself, a brother nine years older than myself, and uh, another brother eight years older. So then they moved to England, basically because they just wanted to give themselves more opportunities because they were really struggling in Ireland. And whilst they were in England, um, I was born. Whereabouts um, in England? I was born in a town called Oldham. It sounds very glamorous, doesn't it? <laughs> Viraline, I think, was from Oldham. Oh, an old ham, I always say. I'm an old ham from Oldham. I was born in absolutely the right place. So, yes, we, they ended up in Oldham probably because they had, my mum had family, like relatives there, but what people she knew there. Other members of the family, you know, in those days, people in Ireland or England, they were sort of moving away. And so... We were in England for 10 years, but they were still, you know, finding it hard. What do you remember about life in Oldham? It's funny, I I was very young, obviously, when I left. I was only four and a half, but I I just have sort of slight memories of the hardship, really, and prams and just, you know, my mum had seen these advertisements for moving to Australia and she actually, what happened was she was doing the washing one day. She was um, outside and then she did everything by hand, washed the sheets, blankets and hung them up on the line. And it absolutely teemed with rain that afternoon. And when my father got home from work, he could see her crying in the backyard. And she looked at him and said, I'm moving to Australia, mainly because she wanted her washing to dry. But because everyone was talking about it, it was this opportunity of a lifetime. And so they did some investigating. My mum's brother, Matt had moved to Adelaide. So she followed suit. So where did the family, where did the O'Connor family land when you first arrived? Well, 
It was such a long journey. I think it was about six weeks on the, the boat. When they arrived in Perth, my mum turned to my father and said, that's it, I'm getting, I'm getting off, I've had enough. You know, because it was, it was, a, it was a difficult thing with, with four children. But they made it to Adelaide and then um, my uncle helped my father get a job laying pipelines and, of course, my mum was, um, you know, housewife in those days and we lived in a place called Elizabeth Park. Now, isn't this where Jimmy Barnes is from? It certainly is. This is quite the, the breeding ground of Australian performers. Yes, I remember working with David Campbell once and he mentioned he was from Elizabeth and I'm like, no, surely not. <laughs> You know, it, it's tough. It was tough there. And early days, you know, we're talking about the, the early sixties and, um, my uncle was incredibly helpful to us at that point, but it was, they were struggling. They were still struggling even at that point, you know. How did you first start? Irish dancing classes? Well, my mum was incredibly passionate about Irish dancing because, well, sadly, she'd never had the opportunity herself. And I think as soon as music would start for me, even when I was a little girl, I would bounce up and down, you know, and start dancing. At this point, my sister was learning dancing and my brothers were too. In fact, there was a competition once while we were still in England and my sister had entered that. She got up and was competing and I escaped and ended up on the stage in a nappy holding a milk <laughs> bottle in my hand just just so dig just jigging up and down and of course the audience is all laughing they're finding it hilarious and my mum's furious because I'm you know showing showing up my sister I was say, I bet your sister hated that oh I bet yeah I bet she loved that yeah <laughs> and then at the end of the day my sister got a certificate that said highly commended and then they, they well we'd also like to present a medal to a lovely little girl <laughs> and of course I got this medal and my poor sister on the way home was saying she got a medal and I only got a piece of paper <laughs> <laughs> so it sort of was from a very young age I even was just sort of drawn to the Celtic music so by the time we got to Adelaide my mum found out where the nearest dancing school was and sent me along and and what was that like what was your first class like do you it remember it was amazing I remember going in there and think because I didn't you know you were so young and you, I didn't know that people even went to learn Irish dancing and there was live music in there and uh, other girls, you know, bouncing up and down. And uh, one thing that freaked me out about the first time I went was there was a raffle and I entered the raffle and I won a clown and it freaked me out. I really hated clowns and I didn't want to go back because of that experience, but thank God I did. I don't know why that popped up in my head. But <laughs> What's the hardest bit of Irish dancing? What's the most challenging part when I, you're learning? I don't know if people realise how difficult it is. It is. It's, it's incredibly rhythmical. And not only do you do the hard shoe work, which is a bit like tap dancing, but you also do the soft shoe work where you're literally on the tips of your toes, a bit like a ballet dancer, like you're on point and you have to fly through the air. And while you're doing all this, you have to keep your arms down by your side. And I often wondered what, why that was. And I remember reading something once where they said they thought it was because they didn't want the girls' skirts to fly up to show their underwear, which probably in Ireland makes sense. But it is a very difficult style of dance you know people sort of make fun of it sometimes you know they'll do the sort of river dance and comedy thing but to execute those steps and to be able to move your legs you know front and back and sort of doing things that they call them rocks and cross keys and they're very complicated moves um i think it was a really good setup for me as a dancer to do that first who gave your mum the idea to move to sydney well i entered a competition the minor championship in Adelaide and um, I was very young and I won this championship and the adjudicator was a gentleman called Sean Gilroy 
That's and a good Irish name for isn't you. Isn't it? And he, he played the fiddle as well. <laughs> he was in a band, so I can't stop doing the Irish accent because I was brought up with it. He was in a band called the Irish Drovers. Now, a lot of people in Australia will probably remember this band because they used to perform a lot on the daytime TV shows and, you know, live as well. And anyway, he was the adjudicator of this competition and said to my mum, I think your little girl has a lot of promise and you should take her to the best school you could possibly find. And my mum did her research, you know, as a very avid Irish dancing fan and, you know, realised that the Ransley School had this amazing reputation of creating champions. And But the school was in Sydney. It was in Sydney. That's, that's a that big was move the for a family to make. problem of the idea that my mother had because my other siblings were still at school. You know, it was okay for me when I'm, you know, so young, but they were at that stage of their schooling where they didn't really need to be taken away. But I think my mum just did, she was one of those impulsive people that just felt, you know, why wait? Let's do it. So how did your dad feel about this proposal? Um, I don't think he ever really argued with my mother, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. I mean, he adored my mother. So um, she was very, she had a lot of uh, get up and go too. She was the sort of person, that, and I think I've, I've that trait from her, where she'd say, I've got this idea and I'm going to make it happen. And so... Uh, they couldn't really afford to get there, you know, we couldn't all fly there or anything like that. So my dad bought a caravan and we moved to Sydney. So myself and my dad and my mum went up first to Sydney. In the caravan? In the caravan. What did it look like? Describe it, it for me. It was blue, um, it was sort of round shaped. In fact, the skeleton of this caravan still exists in my brother's backyard. I think he's so sentimentally attached to this it should caravan. Be a national monument. It should Caroline. be in the Australian Museum. <laughs> I mean, it, it was the tiniest little thing, too. Not glamorous by any stretch. I think my dad painted it with the extra colours on it, and a lovely sort of cream stripe went down the side. And so we jaunted up to Sydney, and we, my mum and I, were sort of left there. At, would you believe, Sean Gilroy's house? What, you parked out the front? Parked out the front <laughs> of his house in Bexley. And my, then my dad drove back to keep taking care of the other three children until the end of school term when he would bring them back. So did you, did you and your mum become friends with, with Sean or did he sort of open the door and think, here are these Can mad you, people? I mean, we did ask in advance. <laughs> we didn't just turn up and say, hi, we're here. You don't mind if we put this in the driveway, do you? But they became lifelong friends. Um, to the point where we would, for years, we used to share Christmases. They'd come to our house and vice versa. And um, and their three kids I became very good friends with and still know to this day. So um, it was a really brave and bold move that my mother made there. And then, of course, rocked up to the Ramsey School saying, my daughter is going to come and learn from you. And what was the school She's like? a champion. And I'm like this size. You know, I'm about two feet tall. And, you know, of course, I was welcomed into the school and it was pretty thrilling because I, I, could, see, I could see how gifted they were. And that's no disrespect to the school that I was in. It's just that Sydney, there was more talented students. You know, they were all sort of competing against each other and beating each other. You know what I mean? So even it's a bit like the Olympics, you know, where people from the same country are uh, competing with each other. That, that's how good they were. But they were teaching other styles of dance there. Tell me about the, the three sisters who ran the school. Oh, they what were, were they incredible, like? incredible. <laughs> I mean, they're still with us. In fact, Joy Ransley um, turned 80 just recently. And were, were they strict? 
incredibly strict. I think that's where I get got my discipline from. You know, I, I danced for an awfully long time. You know, I won't dancing. You can't dance forever. But I think because of their training, it was literally again, 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 do it again. But I think all of that paid off. But I adored them. It's always Miss Joy, Miss Dawn, Miss Shirley. Even now, do you find yourself Hard calling them that? Hard not to say it. You know, they'd say, just call me Joy. And it's like, it just feels wrong. I have so much respect for you. Um, Joy still teaches internationally. Sometimes she goes to Italy and different places. And Dawn's pretty much retired now. But Shirley used to play the piano. She was on the keys and she collected the fees. So she'd be, you know, I've seen that movie, you know, uh, like Stepping Out, and there's a woman behind the piano. Shirley was like that. She'd be playing a beautiful classical piece of music. In the middle of it, she'd say, don't forget your fees are due this week. <laughs> and then we go on with our porta bra, you know. So uh, they were just such characters. Um, what was Miss Joy, what did she look like? Was glamorous. It, was it in what sort of way? In my eyes, glamorous, because she had worked overseas. She worked with, I think, the Royal National Ballet, and she'd worked with, in London with the Royal Ballet. And so she had a beautiful walk. You know, that ballet, you know, 10 to, 10 to 2 walk that she had. I remember her coming into class one day, and she had on, would you believe, I tell no word of a lie, thigh-length pink suede boots with a little pink uh, miniskirt that was suede as well and a beautiful little floral blouse. And I remember she always had gorgeous jewellery, like gold chains and always had lippy on and just beautiful hands, you know, when she talked to you. And even now when she picks up a glass or something, just that real ballet look and body language. So, yes, I, I was... A, I suppose I just adored her. I used to be very, I admired her so much. And also as a teacher, because she just, she treated everybody the same. You know, she pushed us all as hard as each other. And what about you and the other, other girls? What were you wearing in your Irish dancing? What were your dresses like? Well, they used to be very different to they are now. I don't know if people are, you know, are aware, but they're quite stiff now. And the girls wear these wigs that are very curly, almost like uh, little doll wigs. Um, we used to just have our hair, you know, swept up in an elastic band, or we'd put rags in our hair, or would you believe, or sponge rollers, just so we get a natural curl. But the dresses were a little simpler. Everybody that I went to dancing with had machine-made costumes. But my mum insisted on making my costumes, which she was very capable of. And they were all hand-embroidered, beautifully hand-embroidered. With what kind of imagery? Things like Celtic crosses, um, dragons, harps, cottages, leprechauns, shamrocks, you know, anything that was traditionally Irish. I remember she did a, a panel on the, one of my frocks at the front and it was a thatched cottage. And I swear the gold silk thread that she had on the top that she had sewn then sewn across looked exactly like a thatched cottage. In fact, I still own all of these costumes. I'd love to exhibit them one day. Were you proud of them at the time, no, Caroline? I wanted the <laughs> costumes everybody else was wearing. Why do I have to wear the handmade one with the, with the droopy paddles? <laughs> and, you know, now I look back and I think, what a wonderful, beautiful, generous thing to do for me. And I had a lot of them. But you, I would love you to see the stitching on, on these costumes. It is out of this world. Of course, uh, the other costumes to me were perfect and they were quite plain in comparison. 
Um, and she was very proud of it. You know, she'd put it like a sort of cover over the costume. If she'd made a new one, the cover would go over it so that when I got to the competition, there was the big unveiling. I would have seen it, but nobody else. It wasn't wandering around the hall, you know, wearing it like everybody else was. Mine had like a sort of cloak over it. And then the unveiling would happen and that, you'd see, oh, look at Carolina Connor's costume. That's showmanship. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she was quite special. Incredible talent. It's not the sort of thing that you see very often is that sort of work is on exhibition or anything. Is Did she teach you how to sew? Tried to. She was a great crochet, a great at crochet as well. Anything with her hands, actually. Um, arts and crafts, very gifted in that way. I must admit, I really, I'm so grateful. Even my, I remember when I had my Holy Communion, she crocheted my dress and put little tiny pearl buttons all the way down the back. And of course, being the strong woman she was, she said, we were supposed to wear long socks and she said, there's no way you're wearing long socks, not, not on a little girl, they're going to be uncle socks. And of course, when I got to school to and got to the church that day, I got in such trouble because I didn't have the right socks. I'm like, Mom! But you well, would have looked the best. Well, my <laughs> mum used to say, you're better to be an individual than just be like everybody else. So, How successful did you get with Irish dancing? I did pretty good. Tell me. Oh, well, I'm bragging now. But it was... Uh, I won New South Wales championships a, a few times and I won Australian ch- championships a few times, uh, you know, like with different categories like junior, intermediate and senior. And then I went to the um, world championships in Dublin when I was about 15 and I came third in the world in the world championships. And in those days, people didn't know that Irish dancing was even being done in Australia, certainly not the Irish. They were shocked that 12,000 <laughs> miles away or something, people were doing Irish dancing. And I was going actually around the time that Michael Flatley was competing because we were sort of of a similar age. And he wasn't from America. He wasn't from Ireland. So it was quite thrilling to see this uh, culture just sort of expanding into the world. And now it's just everybody knows what Irish dancing is. What other dance classes were you taking at Ransley's? Well, they also taught classical ballet and tap and jazz and what we call character dancing, which is sort of national dancing. And so I remember peering through these lovely curtains. There were those curtains, I don't remember if you could get curtains or fabric that had ballerinas on them. And I can still see that fabric now. It was blue with these gorgeous dances in like arabesque positions. And I remember just peeling back the curtain because you weren't supposed to and looking in and seeing all these girls at the bar, you know, in fifth position and doing all the exercises and joys, you know, screaming out, you know, five, six, seven, eight. And I thought, wow, that looks so beautiful, so elegant. And I really wanted to be a part of that. So I begged and begged my mother, please, can I learn classical ballet? Now, my parents really were not well off by any stretch, so even just sending me to Irish dancing was tough. I think that's why she made my costumes, to be perfectly honest. In the end, she said, okay, you know, have a go. And so I did this class and, and I, I didn't particularly like it. came home and I said, they're just too bossy. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't seem like fun like Irish dancing was. So she gave it away for a while. And then... Going into the studio, you know, week after week, I'd see the other girls again and I said, God, can I, can I take class again? And my mum said, this is the last time. You know, you're not going to do this again. If you go, you go and you do it properly. And for some reason, the second time around, I just completely fell in love with the discipline. And I don't know why. Something clicked and um, I was 
completely bonkers about ballet. To this day, if I could come back again in another life, I think I'd still like to be a ballet dancer. Were you quite different, Caroline, from the other little kids in the suburbs of Sydney? Do you imagine that I probably would have been? (laughs) I was, actually. Also because my parents really embraced their culture. You know, I used to hear the music all the time and go to Kaylee's and my mum would talk about it incessantly, very passionate. And I think in some ways we probably were a little bit different. What did your your teacher, Joy, tell your mum when you were still a teenager at school? What did she say you needed to do? Yeah, over a period of time when she saw how passionate I was, she said, for, for Caroline to have a future in ballet, you have to leave school earlier and really work. What they call it is full-time students. So you, you leave school at about 15, 16, and you study ballet full-time. And so... I thought that was a brilliant idea, of course. I love school, but not that much. What did, I, you, what did your mum think? My mum was very all for it. She was like, well, that, if she's that good, then we probably should do that. So my mum marched me down to the high school I was in at the time, which was St George Girls High School, which was a fabulous high school. It was a selective school. I mean, I remember having to do a test to get into that school. I felt a bit guilty afterwards that I wanted to leave because I knew there would be a lot of other girls that would have loved to have been there. But she said to Mrs. Voida, who was really, really scary, Caroline is leaving school at the end of this term and she's going to study full-time ballet. And Mrs. Voida said, no, she's not. <laughs> <laughs> and my mum said, yes, she is. And that's, it was literally one of those, you know, <laughs> no, I don't think, no, she is. It was one of those conversations and I sat there sort of thinking, oh, my God, this is terrifying. But um, eventually mum got away and said, thank you very much. And that was my en- the end of my education. And, and I ended up doing my school certificate by correspondence. So you were dancing full-time really from the age of 15. What ballet school did you audition for? I, was, I did two years with Joy and Dawn full-time and then I auditioned for the Australian Ballet School and I didn't get in. I was very disappointed about that. But then I applied for the Royal Ballet School because they had a course for, they also accepted overseas students. So all of my photographs and all my examination results and things were sent over and then you just have to wait and see. And I remember getting the letter, coming home from school, and it was just like Billy Elliot. It was literally the same scenario. My mum and dad sitting at the kitchen table and this letter on the table from the Royal Ballet School and us waiting to open it to see if I'd been accepted. And I was accepted and I was completely beside myself. I think at first I didn't realise the gravity of it, of having to live alone in London at 17. But uh, once a once in a lifetime opportunity to go and study somewhere like that. And yeah, my mum and dad sort of then were like looking at each other going, how on earth are we going to pay for this? What were they doing for work at that time? Yeah, my parents actually both got a job at Qantas because um, one, it was a great suggestion by, would you believe our friend Sean? Gilroy. And he's, he's had quite the influence. Oh, he really did. I, I, he's gone now, God bless him, but I owe him a lot. And so they both got jobs at Qantas so that they could basically travel home and visit family if they wanted to, because you've got this amazing deal. I think you only paid like 10% of the ticket. And so they both got jobs. We lived in Rockdale, which was close to the airport, really easy for them to travel to work. And they both took shift work because they would get paid more by doing shift work which meant I didn't see as much of them. 
um, if you know what I mean. I would come home from school as a latchkey kid, let myself in, play my records, have a little sing in secret, and then I never knew whether they were going to be home or not because I couldn't keep track of the shifts. So it was wonderful for them. And then, of course, when it came, came time for me to go to London, I was able to, to travel and that they could cover that cost. But then you have to live somewhere, you have to pay for your ballet shoes, you know, what, you have to What eat. was your accommodation like in London? I lived in a tiny little bedsit in Gwenwa Gardens. I can't believe I can still remember the address. Near Barons Court. It wasn't the fancy place where all the other girls stayed. They stayed at Mrs. Wolfe's, the people that had a bit more money. Uh, but I stayed at this really sort of tragic little place, to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. It was the cheapest thing we could find. And another lovely friend, Rosemary, who was Australian, shared the room with me. Literally the 20p in the metre job. You know, and my mum made us a couple of patchwork quilts to put on our bed to dress it up. And we'd put ballet posters everywhere and, you know, two little gas hobs to cook things that we wouldn't, well, in those days you didn't eat though really very much as a ballet dancer. But it was everything to me. The, the whole, just the experience of being there, living in London, walking down that street every day to that magnificent building where so many brilliant dancers had, had trained and come from. I was so grateful to them for that experience. But they, my mum would do things like have raffles. Back or, in Australia? Yeah. To try to raise money to, to, to help? Yeah. My, at my dancing school, they'd have like little things just to raise a bit of money for me. And, and my mum, this is true, she put like a little bucket on the counter of the cafeteria where she worked at Qantas. I, might, I would have been so ashamed if I'd realised at the time, but she'd just say to people, like, if you want to throw something in there for my daughter, you know, she's studying at the ballet school. So when they buy their lunch or something, they might throw the change in there. This, I mean, incredible sacrifices. They went without so much when I think about it, and that's in the 70s, so that I could go to this school. I'm so glad that it paid off in the end because <laughs> I would have felt terribly guilty. On air, online, and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Caroline, you'd flown off to London at 17 to study at the Royal Ballet School. Did you see your future in ballet back then? It's really interesting being in a place like that where they create such amazing artists. I realised by being in one of the greatest schools in the, in the world that I was not going to be a great ballet dancer. It, it was a real eye-opener. I mean, I was good, but I certainly wasn't anywhere near the talent of the other people there. Was that one moment or was that a kind of evolving realisation? Yeah, it, it evolved. I, I thought I might pull it off with my, you know, with my energy and my vivacity. And I just thought, I'll pull this, I'll be able to do this, even though I don't have the best feet and I don't have the most wonderful sway back legs and, and I'm not the prettiest girl in the room, but I'm going to, that was just the way I was. I just had that sort of gusto. And then second year, because I was accepted for a second year to train, and I realised then, I started to see the real, because it was all being cut down and there were people in grad class I would watch that became very famous ballet dancers and I just compared myself to them and thought, 
be realistic here. This is you are going. You're never going to be the head swan. It's not going to happen. You might be third swan from the left, up the back somewhere <laughs> where they can't see you, but you're never going to be. And it wasn't just because I wanted to be a star. I just I wanted to be a good ballet dancer. So and what did you do? So I came home, and the first thing I did was go back to class at the Ransley School. Back to Ransley's. Back to my old school. And literally, I think one of the first days I was back, a lovely lady from the Australian Ballet came in. Her name was Lois Strike. And she said to me, what are you doing here? And I, you know, just because she'd never seen me before, I said, oh, I've come back from the Royal Ballet School. I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do. And she said, oh, um, I don't suppose you could help us out. One of our dancers at the Australian Opera has an injury and we need someone to fill in because it's like a maypole dance, you know, where they use the ribbons and we can't do it without the extra body. Would you mind coming in and standing in for her for a few days? Would I ever? And I said, oh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, absolutely. I went down and met everybody, got involved with it. Then turns out this poor girl, her injury was really not improving. And so then I did the dress rehearsal and then it got close to opening night and the choreographer said, well, I think now she's done all the rehearsals, she should do the show. So I ended up in The Bartered Bride at the Opera House, my very first professional job, with the Australian Opera and dancing with the ballet company. And after opening night, I was called into the office thinking, oh, I'm in serious trouble here. And they said, we'd like to offer you a contract for a year. It was one of those crazy fate. I believe in fate. It was meant to happen. I don't know why, but um, that's, that's how I got into professional show business, really. So you were still dancing. You were still really in that world of ballet then. Mm. How did that shift? How did musical theatre come knocking or you come knocking at its door? Well, it was due to somebody I was working with at the time. People may have heard of him. His name is Anthony Warlow. He was in The Battered Bride. Actually, he used to call it The Battered Sav, I remember. <laughs> He's a funny guy. And I got to know him quite well. You know, we became friends. He wasn't a dancer, but he was doing guest roles with the company as a singer. And he said to me, and this is no word of a lie, he said to me one day, you know what, have you ever thought about auditioning for musicals? Because I think you've got a bit too much uh, personality for the ballet, which I thought was heaven, and I never forgot it. <laughs> and he said, there's you know, auditions all the time. And I didn't know really anything about musical theatre. I hadn't trained in that world. I'd watched all the movies, the musical movies. I listened to all the records, but I didn't know anything of the culture. He said, you know, do you know who Stephen Sondheim is? I'm like, no. Do you know? I didn't know anything. Had you ever sung in public? I'd sung in secret, and I did that for many, many years in our good lounge room in Rockdale. Just to put those records on, people like Judy Garland and Ethel Merman and Shirley Bassey, anybody I could get my hands on, and I would sing and try and sound like them. And then I'd record it on a cassette so I could listen to see what I sounded like. And my mum found this box of cassettes years later and said, what on earth is this? Because she'd been paying for dance lessons. Meanwhile, I was secretly singing in the lounge room and recording myself. So I went to this audition, which came up, which was for Oklahoma. And they were looking for one dancer, because once again, would you believe someone was injured? And I auditioned, and I knew so little, Sarah, about musical theatre that I sang I Got Rhythm for Oklahoma, which is totally, you know, that song, am I allowed to sing? Yes, please. I got rhythm, I've got music, I got my man who could ask for anything more. It was literally like more like that. <laughs> for Oklahoma, it was just totally inappropriate. But somebody that was at the audition said to me, you've got a pretty good voice in there somewhere. You should work on that voice. Anyway, I get the call. 
because I was a very well-trained ballet dancer and the choreography in, in Oklahoma is very, it's Agnes DeMille and it, it's, it's, you have to be well-trained to do it. And so I got the call and I got the job. So and what was your role in Oklahoma? I was a swing. What does that mean? A swing is someone who is on standby. It's a, some, you have to learn all of the female roles, not the principal roles, but all of the female ensemble roles in the show. So that if anybody at all gets sick or drops out or injured, that you can step in at a moment's notice. Even if it's during the show, you can actually put on a costume and jump in. And to me, that was probably the best training I could possibly have had because as a starter in musical theatre, swing is probably one of the most difficult jobs a person can have. And it's you don't really get the... the they don't celebrate you, even though you're kind of saving the show every night. And was it a completely different world to ballet yeah, backstage? And, and it, well, how was it? Oh, it was so fun, 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 fun. I mean, ballet's wonderful, but, you know, it was just hilarity because there's a lot of comedy in it, the backstage, you know, stuff that goes on. It's so naughty and fun and, you know, everyone gets to know each other very well because it's a very intimate situation too. But I just loved that sort of community. You made friends very quickly. You went on tour. That music, the orchestra, just the whole energy of it. I thought I'd just landed in a sort of place that I didn't even know existed at the time. And um, that was it. I'd bitten the, the bug had happened and I was, you know, part of the community then. Did you have to give yourself a kind of crash course in, in musical theatre to, sort of <laughs> to get I, up to speed? I did, actually. I, I Even before that, I'd st- I was always interested in it, but I, I started taking myself to the library and getting books on musical theatre. And, you know, I'm a bit of an aficionado now, if I say, say myself, on, um, you know, composers. and not Because I'm not just interested in the singers or the dancers. I like knowing about the directors and the choreographers and the lighting people and in fact Jamie Hammerstein Oscar Hammerstein's son was the gentleman who directed that production of Oklahoma so I remember reading about him and then finding about that finding out about his father and going this is all so extraordinary and wonderful so I did have to do my research I had to find appropriate material to sing at auditions and and then that became a passion to the research. You then headed off to London what was your first job on the West End? Oh I got a job on an amazing show called Me and My Girl, which was an English musical. And the leading lady was Emma Thompson, who I don't know if a lot of people realise has done musicals, but that was her first musical, possibly her last, because she became a superstar after that. And I got a role uh, in the ensemble, but I was um, I was her understudy for the show because she was playing Sally Smith. So to be in a room with someone like that, and Robert Lindsay too, who was in the show, I started to realise, like, watching their craft, even though I hadn't studied, I was totally in the right place to be able to watch these brilliant people who were so good at what they do. And what did that gig lead to? Once you get known in the West End too and people get to know your work, they, they see you and they go, oh, have you seen this girl, this new girl? I auditioned, my next show was Cabaret, which was Gillian Lynn who did the original version of Cats and Phantom of the Opera. She directed and choreographed that show. It sounds like you walked right into amazing opportunities. You know, Australians, you they lucky? just walk in and they just take over. <laughs> I don't know. I think it was the training, though, you know, see, I really do. I mean, I look back and I, I didn't realise at the time that because I'd had such wonderful training, they can spot that a mile away. You can't sort of fool those people if you're not really a good dancer or you haven't trained. But even with my singing, I think because I'd always enjoyed singing in secret and I loved characters, I was never frightened to get out there and sing something. I didn't think I'd end up be a, being a singer as such. I didn't think I could call myself a singer. 
But Cabaret was the next one, and I got to understudy a leading role in that too. I became a bit of an... In the West End, I understudied a lot of people. And Does that get hard? Like when you're the understudy, are you sort of hoping that they'll... Lead will get sick or you're thinking of Harrington or Did you fall or was you pushed? Exactly. I'm seeing this pattern of they suddenly got injured and I was there. I sound like I should be in some one of one of those frenzied files shows or something. And yes, and there was she was injured and then I I It must be hard though. Ready night after night and and not being the one. I think you know, I never thought, Oh, I want to be a leading lady. It just never came into my mind. I loved, loved being on stage. And what I found was by watching these brilliant people that were playing the leads and then going and rehearsing was I was learning my craft while I was working, while I was earning. So even though I might not be playing the role, I was doing it probably twice a week, rehearsing it and working with the same brilliant director, the same brilliant musical director and sort of learning my craft that way. And and that went on for about... 10 years uh, of musicals in in England. What were auditions like for you? Were they stressful? Oh, they're just so horrible. They really are. Anybody that's ever had to do that, uh, I don't know if it compares with a job interview. I have no idea. But because they're looking at you, every part of you, it's so critical. You're body shape, you know, you, how tall you are, the colour of your skin, you know, the everything, they're so critical because you have to you have to fit in, you have to be just right. So you just feel a little bit paranoid about yourself. You want to feel good about yourself, but you think, oh, will I fit in? Um, Tell me about auditioning for A Chorus Line. What was that like? That was in, that was in London. A Chorus Line at that time even then it was still incredibly popular as a show because for a dancer it was a wonderful show to to be in just physically with the 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 demands of the work and so I heard there was an audition and I was still under contract actually doing cabaret and I went along and when I arrived there was a queue from the Phoenix Theatre in London which is in the West End all the way down to Trafalgar Square I couldn't believe my eyes I thought you've got to be joking me in the old days, they called it a cattle call, where anybody could turn up and audition. It didn't matter, you know, what your standard was. Everyone had a right to audition. So we queued up, and I was told, by the time I got to the top, I was told there were 1,500 people there that day. I, I couldn't believe my ears, but they all came out of the woodwork from every city in England, you know, to come <laughs> and be in the show. And it was so cold this day, they brought out little cups of polystyrene cups of tomato soup for us. It was so sweet. Like they'd obviously done a big batch out the back and they were just to make sure that we stayed in line and waited our turn. How long did they see that many dancers? Oh, it, went on for, it went on for a long time. I mean, some of those people weren't seen that day. You'd have to come back the next day, but you'd just queue up and wait your turn. You know, you couldn't do anything else. And I remember her, them handing me a script for a character called Bibi Bensenheimer and her character, basically, she's the... She's not terribly attractive and she's not, she has, doesn't have a lot of self-esteem. And I thought, oh, <laughs> Thanks. They, they, they basically sort of told me who I am. That's really harsh. But I read, the, read for that role and then the same day the director said, would you like this script for Cassie, who's the, the leading player? She said, I just love, would love you to come back and read this for me tomorrow. And I went home and I sort of was holding it like the Holy Grail all the way home. I just couldn't believe I was even being given the opportunity. They told us that we had the job on the day, which is very unusual. Like normally you get it by phone, you get the no on a Friday afternoon when you can't call them back. You know what I mean? They always time it to perfection. And I basically, we rocked up to the last day of the auditions because, you know, you go back and you go back and you go back. And there's a line of us there. And I realized there's only one of each of us of the characters in the show. 
when we all looked at each other going, well, where is everybody else? And the director said to us, I'd just like to tell you that you've, you've all been cast in the show. Oh, my God, we were crying and we were jumping around and grabbing each other and it was just amazing. And you were Cassie? Yes, they yeah. ended up giving me that role. And I do think, again, it was because of the, the dance training and, and doing, you know, doing a, show, doing a show like that eight times a week, it's very, very demanding. So, um, yeah, auditions are really hard, but when you get the job, it's really great. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Could your mum and dad ever come over and, and see you when you were mm. performing overseas? Keep them away if you can. I mean, they those, had those, they ten, were, those, those ten percent tickets. <laughs> My mum and dad would be there in a flash. Every show I ever did, even when I was in Australia too, but they would be there in a heartbeat. They saw all of the shows I ever did in England, and I was there for fourteen years working. Yeah, they come to everything, and they were so incredibly proud. What were proud. they like in, in the audience? Oh, Did they make themselves known? Of course, my mum, my dad, quiet as a mouse, a very quiet man. But my mum would literally tap everybody around her vicinity on the shoulder and say, "That's my daughter up there now." Yes, and if you want to come <laughs> backstage afterwards, she'd love to meet you. And I'd be like, "Mum, please don't bring back the whole row of people <laughs> I've never met before." But she was so incredibly proud, and she'd always come and see the show time and time again. Her motto was. I come to see it the first time uh, and I don't see anything but you. And then I come the second time and I see everything else. And then the third time I know what's going on. Because she'd just literally be watching me like, is this really happening? Did you feel nervous with her in the audience? Or no. Was was sweet for you? Yeah, it was day? amazing support. She, my mum was, if I was ever really blue or maybe maybe I didn't get a job I wanted or something, I would ring her and she just knew exactly what to say to to make me feel better about it and to keep, you know, surging ahead or trying as trying as hard as I possibly could. When Baz Lernham started casting for his movie Moulin Rouge, were you keen to try out for no, that? No, I thought I was too old. Oh, it's a harsh world you live in. <laughs> I'm very realistic. You know, I, I know who I am. My well, mum said to me once, um, I said to her, did you think I did well today? And she said to me, self-praise is no recommendation. And that was the motto I lived by for the rest of my life. She was pretty tough, my mum, but, you know, she gave me so much. But anyway, so I knew, I know myself. I know what I look like. I know I'm not. You're gorgeous. Oh, what are you talking about? But, you know, as far as, you know, beauty queens go. Anyway, but I was very fit at the time, even though, I'll be honest, I'm going to tell you, I was 36 at the time when I was doing uh, Chicago on stage, which is, you know, a fair age. And um, everyone else in the show was auditioning. All my friends were auditioning. And I said to myself, oh, I don't think he's going to. I don't think. Baz Luhrmann from Strictly Borum, uh, Romeo and Juliet, I don't think he's going to want me. And But he came to the opening night of Chicago and, and saw me and I got a fax the next day saying, will you come and do a screen test? So I was totally wrong. And when I went to meet him, it was thrilling. I've never been to a screen test before. I've, I've never done, done a movie like that before. So I met with him. He was charming. He asked me to do some dialogue from Cabaret, which was a godsend because I'd done the show. And then he said, I said, do you want me to sing for you? And he said, actually, I know I asked you to bring a song, but it's not necessary because I've heard your recordings. And I said, please, please let me sing, <laughs> which is so stupid. But I just wanted, I had that moment and I just wanted to sing what for What did him. you sing? So I said, I'll sing maybe this time for you. And he put me in the window. And, of course, he used to film everything when you were being cast in, in his home. He Just even chatting like we are now, he would film everything just to see what you look like. And I sang maybe this time for him a cappella and 
Could you do that for us now? Oh, I could do a little bit. Mm, maybe this time I'll be lucky. Maybe this time he'll stay. Maybe this time, for the first time, love won't hurry away. He will hold me fast. I better not do it. I'll sing the whole song. No but wonder I, you got cast. I was just singing that little, and I was very nervous, but I just thought... I'm going to take this opportunity. If I don't get it, I don't get it. And then it took about a week and then I got a phone call saying that I'd, you know, been cast and I, yeah, I'd been watching movie musicals all my life and I didn't think in my wildest dreams that there would be a movie musical made in Australia. And what was the standout part of that huge, massive, over-the-top production? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd say Roxanne, doing that Roxanne number in the movie was extraordinary because it, it wasn't in the original script, actually, Sarah. It was, when and I this read is a the tango script, performed to Yeah, it's a tango to Roxanne. to Roxanne, the music Roxanne, which was originally written by Sting, but it was given a new flavour and uh, as a tango. And then we had six men and then we had 40 couples. So it was a big production number. And, you know, so many people I meet or well, nearly always say to me, oh, my gosh, I just that moment in the film, I just absolutely loved it. So I feel really proud to have been part of such an incredible piece of work. As a performer, did you get the same buzz performing on film rather than a live audience, which is what you were so used to? Um, in some ways, yes, I did. Um, it's interesting working with Baz because we, we would present some of the numbers sometimes when Cha-Cha had finished, John O'Connor would finish some of the choreography. We would perform it maybe for some of the staff the crew and people. And so we would get that feedback, the applause and the screaming and everything. And that's just the way he works. I'm sure that doesn't happen on a lot of other films. But yeah, so what you did you did get that sort of sensation of live theatre. I loved it. It's very different. I, I don't know that I it's something that I would want to do all of the time because I just love being in front of an audience. Working in theatre, there's that buzz and that energy of a live audience but of course COVID has meant that that people like you performers haven't had that for for a year or so what's it been like for you mm. as, a, as a performer in this era of COVID? It, I'm not going to lie it's been incredibly tough I mean I've had emotional moments that I never thought I would have you know just because I suppose I've been very fortunate too in my work that I'm a bit of a workaholic too I've worked a lot over the years and to have absolutely Absolutely nothing. It's almost like an arm has been cut off or something. It has been the most bizarre sensation. At times I felt terribly sad because I'm not getting the same endorphin rushes and the same feelings as I do when I sing or when I perform or when I'm rehearsing or even when I'm around the people that I'm used to being around, that kind of energy. Uh, it's been very, very tough and also not being able to see when it's going to end. Now things are starting to open up a bit and thank God, but I, you can't be sure. You know, we're looking at other places around the world and they're, they're still struggling terribly. What's I, got you through over this last year? Karen? My husband, probably. He's just amazing. And, and we moved to Noosa, which was very exciting. And I got a little poodle called Lola. I call her Lola the showgirl. <laughs> And so um, just really like normal life stuff. You've probably never done that. I have never d had to sit every night and go, what are we having for dinner? Because I was never home at dinner. <laughs> it's been the weirdest feeling to go, oh, not again. Do we have to have that conversation again about dinner? 
What about your bedtimes? How has that changed? I'm in bed by 8.30 sometimes. It's embarrassing. It's barely dark outside. Normally I'd be still out, you know, after the show having a glass of wine somewhere at 11 o'clock with my friends <laughs> and then waking up really late. So the whole my whole life has been flipped upside down. I feel very, very strange. I feel very cautious about what's happening. I don't want to get too excited in case the rug's pulled out from underneath well, me. You are about to go back on stage. What's the show that you're bringing to QPAC in yeah. Brisbane? Yeah, oh, this is so fun, this show, because it's not a musical as such. It's m- myself just doing a cabaret of songs from shows that I've appeared in, and it's called From Broadway With Love. And I called it that because I've been so lucky to do, you know, a few productions on Broadway and I've done a lot of Broadway musicals and I love them. So it sort of made total sense. I'll be doing numbers from some of the shows I've been in, like Chicago and Moulin Rouge and Anything Goes and and having lots of chats about my experiences while I've been working on these shows or people I've worked with and places that I've been. So I get a real uh, connection with the audience, which you don't get when you do a musical because there's a fourth wall. So it's a really lovely experience. Which song are you most looking forward to singing? I love doing the Piaf medley. I really enjoy that because people are shocked. I think sometimes when I'm performing, I like to get sort of slightly into the character. So I'm not always playing Caroline O'Connor singing songs. I'm being that character, even the accent, you know, the body language. Um, That always goes down really well. I wonder, Caroline, if your mum hadn't taken that big risk and driven the caravan across from Adelaide to Sydney. Well, she didn't drive. My dad drove, I have to say, because my mum was a terrible driver. <laughs> well, convinced, to, she I, convinced your dad <laughs> to do the driving. Exactly. If, if your family hadn't taken that risk, I wonder what kind of life you would have led, who you would have become. I think I would have been pushing a pram around Oldham with like one in the pram, four behind me, dragging them along. I don't think I really would have. Honestly. You don't sound too, too happy no, by that No, I'm sorry, everybody that does that. Everybody in Oldham, that does, I'm so sorry, but it's just not for me. I don't know why or how this happened. I just count my lucky stars. My mum was the catalyst for all of this, though. Without her, it would never have happened. And my dad was there always behind, being so incredibly supportive. In fact, as he got older, I remember once sitting with him in the lounge room and he said to me, Caroline, is there nothing you can't do? And I thought that was the greatest compliment from my my father and my mother always being there. Yeah, they were very proud. And just this past year, I was very lucky. I was I received an AM for my contribution to theatre. And I'm so sad that my parents weren't around for that because I know they would have been so thrilled. Oh, I hope they're looking down or oh, somehow participating. She's probably still saying, do you need to practice more? Self-praise <laughs> is no recommendation. <laughs> Caroline, thanks so much for being my guest on Conversations. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Testing. One, two, three. 
Hello, I'm Andy Matthews. And I'm Alistair Tremblay-Birchall. And we believe science is the most powerful and noble of human endeavours, a valiant attempt to make sense of a sometimes inscrutable universe. It's a complicated and thankless task for scientists that can only be made worse by being put in a room with four comedians and having their field of study routinely mocked and misunderstood for half an hour. Which is why it brings us no joy to announce that that's exactly what we've done with The Pop Test. Every episode, we've chosen a field, attempted to summarize its entire history in six trivia questions, and then asked our guests to apply their newfound knowledge to answer some of the big mysteries. What is love? Why do we die? What lighting system is most appropriate for a soccer match with snakes? And then we finish with a speed round, but because it's taking us in a particular direction, we call it a velocity round. We hope that you enjoy listening to the show as much as we enjoyed writing this brief introduction to it. Out now on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. 